Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. China owns our dick pics, our data, our debt, and our elites. That, in one sentence, is the provocative argument put forward by journalist Isaac Stonefish in a new book called America Second. It's a book about how China has captured U.S. elites using blandishments such as board seats, paid junkets to China, and all forms of flattery. Isaac's the former Asia editor for foreign policy. He's now set up a company called Strategy Risks. Isaac, let's start with your most startling accusation from the book that Henry Kissinger should be viewed as an agent of Chinese influence, or in Chinese official parlance, a friend. You argued the process was shepherded by Zhou Enlai over five years and nine visits from 1971 through to 1976. Kissinger was, of course, Nixon's secret envoy who started China-U.S. ties. Looking sort of from the big picture, I mean, how much has Kissinger shifted the dial on U.S.-China policy? Kissinger has been on the U.S. side the single most influential person, directing, dictating the relationships.、Uh, he's one of the most brilliant statesmen of the 20th century. But Kissinger has, for a very long time, been mostly concerned with Kissinger, and he's managed to play this great trick in Washington, which is. Pretending to speak with the gravitas of an elder statesman, while frankly being a businessman and a consultant and a lobbyist since he started Kissinger Associates in 1982, and for so long, the DC policy community, which sounds niche but is incredibly influential both in the United States and globally, has taken what he said as the words of a brilliant. Realist and strategic thinker, when really they should have been viewed as the words of someone who is in business to try to help U.S. companies succeed in China. And I mean, I think what's astonishing about your book is the number of pies that Kissinger Associates has had fingers in, the number of the amount of money that Kissinger has made. But nonetheless, I mean, to call him an agent of Chinese influence is—it's a grave accusation and. Um, I note Kissinger didn't give you an interview, and his representative denied that he was an agent of Chinese influence and said that allegation was libelous. And he said Kissinger's relationship with China is the highest and best tradition of American statesmanship. I mean, talk us through the process. Did you reach out to Kissinger, and, and what happened? Certainly. So. I'm very glad that Kissinger's relationship with China is not, in fact, in the highest and best tradition of American statesmanship. I think that clearly degrades the quality of U.S. statesmanship. It was a, a fairly standard process with journalism, where I sent a long list of questions to. A website that had Kissinger's name on it. No one got back to me. I followed up. They forwarded on to someone else. I followed up again. You know, eventually, after a several month long process, I got a letter from a representative of Kissinger. You know, a long letter, and this is the excerpt of what Kissinger said that we put in the book. I think, in terms of the phrase "an agent of Chinese influence." 
you know, we very carefully didn't use the word spy because the concept of it is quite different. Um, you know, you when you work, say, for Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Europe or Voice of America, you know, you're an agent of American influence. You're being paid by the U.S. government um, to propagate American values globally. And I think Kissinger, you know, I can't speak for him, of course, but I, th- I think he'd be OK thinking of himself as an agent of American influence. But um, Kissinger has done so much, possibly intentionally, possibly inadvertently, to expand and support and promote Chinese interests that that felt like the most accurate term to call him uh, based on the facts surrounding his many decades long engagement with the country and with the Communist Party. Mm. I mean, he's nothing if not consistent. I mean, you're talking, he's basically <laughs> held the same line for 50 or 50, getting on to 51 years now of rapprochement. And you could argue from a certain point of view that certainly during the Cold War, this was an immense benefit to the United States. I mean, it, it was a key sort of part of them, if you like, winning the Cold War over the Soviet Union. So, but I mean, how do you unpick his motives, if you like? I mean, how do you separate grift from, you know, possibly whether, as you say, accidentally, um, someone who does on occasion act in America's national interest? Kissinger, back when he was in office and more influential in D.C. in the 80s and 90s, was known as a first-class prevaricator. There's a, there's a few quotes I have in the book. I think one is when then-President Bush is meeting with Gorbachev and says, it's Gorbachev or Yeltsin, and says, oh, yeah, I heard something you know, from your meeting with Henry Kissinger, but I can't really trust it because, of course, it's Henry Kissinger. And the New York Times, in a obituary of a former Kissinger aide, who the New York Times calls Kissinger's Kissinger, a trusted aide of Kissinger, uh, this person said, you know, some people lie because it's in their interest, and Kissinger lies because it's in his nature. And this is a close ally of his. So it's so hard to unpack, untangle the motives of why Kissinger did what he did. But the clearest through line through them is this helped Kissinger stay powerful and influential throughout successive U.S. administrations and successive Chinese administrations. And power is a you know very powerful aphrodisiac to <laughs> bastardize one of the great man himself's quotes. One thing everyone struggles with is what does the Chinese side think? Um, so obviously we don't know what Zhou Enlai thought of him. You have this lovely quote from Mao where he describes him as a funny little man who shook out of fear whenever he was in Mao's <laughs> presence. Um, but I mean, do you have a sense on the Chinese side how he's viewed? I would love to know. He, he, he's such a sensitive figure. So you don't have real reflections of him in memoirs or in Chinese news articles. Frankly, I would love to know how Hu Jintao thought of anyone. (laughs) He's such a cipher. Uh, But I, I really don't know Jiang Zemin, Xi Jinping. They must have opinions on him. And... I, I think they would probably, you know, my guess, and this is just pure speculation, is that they would probably sort of dread the meetings and think, oh, this guy again, I have to smile and, and shake hands with this with this person again. Can't we stop doing this? But they understand the, the strategic necessity of it. But I really have absolutely no sense on that. I must say, I did love the kind of uh, dare I say, the gossipy nature of the book. Um, you know, one of the <laughs> quotes that sticks in my mind is not even about Kissinger, but Queen Elizabeth 
saying that Hu Jintao was the most boring person she'd met in her entire life. <laughs> which is and, which is saying something because she must have met a lot of boring people. <laughs> I mean, you know, she so many people. Those, you know, she's meeting hundreds of people a day, so that that's quite a first, you know. Another of the anecdotes that I really like, and maybe it talks a little bit to the way in which China went about courting Kissinger, was when you write about Donald Trump, his trip to China, and apparently after Donald Trump got the sort of red carpet treatment, uh, Kissinger told a US government official, well, of course, I know it worked for Trump, it worked for me. So, I mean, maybe you could talk us through that. How did China go about courting Kissinger? What is the strategy for capturing elites like him? So Kissinger has always had a a good sense of humor and has poked fun at his massive ego. So there's been other public examples of him, you know, him making jokes like that. In terms of the process of courting, it's laying out subtle hints that the way other people see China might be wrong and that your interlocutor has such a sophisticated mind that he's able to pick out the nuance required to understand the glory and the enormity that is China. You paint the country as this grand, mysterious place filled with subtle and sophisticated laws and rules and customs that only a very rare type of Westerner can understand. And when someone seems to be called in by that, you start giving them information and you start repeating things. And one former diplomat called it a series of sonar pings, but you give them information and you see how that information travels and you see if you can confirm that that information is spreading. And if they are trusted, for lack of a better term, you know, propagandizers of that information, you give them more information, you give them more meetings, you give them more access, because they're starting to be a trusted lackey, a, a trusted distributor of, quote unquote, the great wisdom of China. Oh, China's really trying hard to reform. Oh, you know, we want to improve the US-China relationship. It's just that their people on the American side who don't want to improve it. Oh, yeah, we're trying to democratize. We're trying to liberalize. We're trying to bring on free trade. And these things then gain currency outside of China into the United States or Western Europe or Australia or New Zealand. And I mean, in terms of access, what is Kissinger's access like? How high does it go? Kissinger's access is paramount. And one of the favorite photos I found while researching this book is Kissinger, I think it was in the early 2000s or late 1990s, uh, meeting with a series of Chinese officials going and investigating. I think it was the Three Gorges Dam. And, you know, Louisa, I think you've seen enough staged photos of Chinese leaders uh, investigating things. Oh, they'll go investigate this school this accident, this thing, that thing. And Kissinger was posing just like a Chinese leader. I've never seen a non-Chinese leader do that in any sort of photo. It was very striking. It was just, he had gotten the official Jiang Zemin going and investigating a factory treatment, Li Keqiang going investigating a factory. So it's, I don't know if Kissinger can say, I want to go to China, I want to meet with Xi Jinping, and it just happens. But 
most of the times that he's gone, he's met with very senior officials and probably more than any other American alive. Uh, he He's probably had more face-to-face meetings with Chinese leaders than any other American, live or dead, with the possible exception of Edgar Snow, who just spent so much time with Mao in the 30s. Besides him, it probably was Kissinger. Is there any indication of whether that access has continued in the Xi Jinping era as China has kind of retreated a little bit from outside influence? Do we know if Kissinger still has his sort of through line to China's leaders? We do know that he's met with Xi Jinping at least several times, possibly more. It's hard to know how many meetings he has that don't go reported in Xinhua or the People's Daily. The... It's also hard to know where things are right now, both because of Kissinger's advanced age, I believe he's 98 right now, and the real difficulty of getting into China. So it's one has to assume that he's, you know, his influence is waning, but his longevity continues to astound. So I, you know, he might pass away actuarially. He probably doesn't have that much longer left, but. He also could, you know, go and appear in China at some point in 2022, and I would not be shocked. <laughs> I mean, there's so much in your book to talk about across a whole breadth of fields that he seems to have influence. So in diplomacy, business, education, culture. But in terms of the Howard, I'd like you to talk to one specific example you have in the book, and probably one of the most striking is um, his influence with Walt Disney and the, and the Tibet movement. I mean, how, how did that strategy play out? So it, it was just such a funny aha moment as I was reporting this to see that, to see Eisner talk about hiring Kissinger. Oh, Kissinger will tell me what to do. He told Charlie Rose. And then also to see Kissinger as the person hired for the Bond movie that was supposedly going to take place with a Hong Kong nuclear reactor and then was rewritten for a more neutral plot. So the first... And that, that was back in 1997, right? Yes, in 1997, the first known example of a Hollywood studio rewriting a film to please Beijing came from Kissinger. And part of the way it's worked on the US side is that you know, Kissinger has created such, a, such an aura of gravitas around him for problems anywhere in the globe, but especially in China, that Kissinger is the elite's favorite interlocutor for China. He's your man. He's your guy. And the wide range of of U.S. and global corporations that have decided to listen to him on this is frankly astounding. And I, I thought it was very striking with Rio Tinto and Indonesia, where When the country was going through a democratic transition, the new Indonesian president appointed Kissinger a special advisor. And Kissinger says publicly he's not getting paid for this. He's doing this for the love of the U.S.-Indonesian relationship, but of course doesn't disclose that he's on the board of Freeport-McMoran and that they have an open dispute with the Indonesian government and that Kissinger is negotiating with the Indonesians for that. So it's just it's it's just so baldly deceptive, and it's it's almost like a game that he's playing. How much can he convince people that he's not doing these things for the reason that he's doing them? 
and it's it's of course not just Kissinger that's playing this game. I mean, he's he's sort of if you like the the most powerful and the leading light. But this is done by a whole variety of of, of former uh, you know famous and not so famous statesmen. But for these companies, I mean, whether it's AIG or Boeing or you know all of these massive companies. In practice, what are these guys doing on the ground for these companies in in China? So they're often doing very little at a very high level for a very high price tag that sometimes is well worth the companies paying. So often what they're doing is just a single mention or an email or a letter asking the, the Chinese officials or officials in other countries to take another look at a tax case or to reevaluate their blocking of a merger or to stop investigating a certain company. And the companies will pay hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars you know, for that single email. And oftentimes the companies will provide other services as well. You know, Kissinger will brief their board, Scowcroft, uh, Eagleburger, Albright, you know, will we'll show up at meetings, will give speeches. But often really what they're paying for at the end of the day is that person making a phone call. I'm interested, too, in how Kissinger has managed to preserve his longevity in China. I mean, I remember back when we were both in Beijing, when it was the height of Borsi Lai's red movement in Chongqing. And Kissinger kept turning up at these events in Chongqing and really praising Borsi Lai very fulsomely. You know, he was um, saying things like, as an intellectual visiting Chongqing, I saw the vision for the future of Chinese leaders. And I remember the rumors were going around that he was paid sort of very handsomely, you know, to the tune of millions of dollars for attending those events. But how is it that he managed to survive that and preserve his influence in China? Kissinger was surprisingly unscathed by Watergate and has been surprisingly unscathed by so many scandals that he's been enmeshed with. And I would love to know how he apologized to Xi Jinping because I would suspect that he did for his relationship with Bo Xilai. And this is just conjecture, but one imagines that he thought Bo Xilai was the future of China and this was a Chinese leader that he should ingratiate himself with. And like so many others, he was wrong about that. And when Bo fell... Yeah, one can just imagine Kissinger's self-criticism and the work that he had to do to make sure that Xi Jinping knew he was a loyal friend of China. So I was also looking at Kissinger's ties with China um, in some work that I was doing with the journalist Julia Bergen. And we were looking at the FARA filings, the Foreign Agents Registration Act in the U.S., um, we became very interested in the China-U.S. Exchange Foundation, which is bankrolled by Hong Kong's former chief executive, Tung Chihua. And it funds a sort of huge n- a number of exchange visits to China by, you know, all kinds of people, journalists, students, politicians, leaders. And it also funds research. And, you know, it was really notable to us that it is the sole funder for the Pacific Community Initiative at the Henry A. Kissinger Center for Global Affairs at John Hopkins University. It was also one of the founding funders, one of 18 founding funders for the Henry A. Kissinger Center, which was the biggest gift that John Hopkins has ever received. I mean, 
is it a matter of concern that you know, a foundation run by someone who's so close to the Chinese state is bankrolling U.S. research in this way. I'm so mixed on how much restrictions there should be on Chinese funding of U.S. research. I, I, I don't think we want to cut off foreign funding, and I don't think we necessarily want to cut off Chinese funding. I think people should understand that that does steer or compromise the research and I think people should be concerned by it. I don't think there necessarily should be the restriction on it. I would also say one way Kissinger is brilliant in D.C. is he has managed to litter his name across a wide variety of institutions and chairs that have views that are quite different from him on China. Uh, you know, there's Aaron Friedberg, who's a, a very smart China hawk, was the inaugural Kissinger chair at the Library of Congress. Uh, Robert Daly, who's very sharp on these issues and probably strongly disagrees with Kissinger on a lot of them, uh, runs the Kissinger Institute at the Wilson Center. And Kissinger, part of the reason why there's been so little attention to what Kissinger has done and the you know, huge crime isn't the right word, but sort of the, the huge cost that he's imposed on the United States is because people haven't actually pared away all of the noise and realize what he has said or what he has done because he has so many proxies and he has so many institutions that are afraid of angering him. There, there was this great little uh, storm in a teacup at CFR, I think about 15 years ago when... The Council a, for Foreign Relations. Yes, right? yes, which is the most powerful uh, U.S. foreign policy nonprofit in the United States. And there was someone who had written a book about Kissinger in Latin America, I believe. And he alleged that foreign affairs uh, censored him for not allowing to do a review because the book offended Kissinger. And there's all sorts of you know, rumors and and theories about the the strings that Kissinger pulls there. But there are a lot of people there who owe their career or their reputation to him. And some of them have radically different views from Kissinger. And it's, it's a brilliant way to operate. So you don't see, I mean, these kind of initiatives which bear his name, you don't think they're vanity initiatives? <laughs> I certainly think they're vanity initiatives. And I think they serve other greater purposes for him. I mean, I don't want to say greater for him because, you know, perhaps the greatest is the vanity, but I think in terms of the influence that they have on other people, they are very effective forms of not necessarily reputation laundering, but a way for him to appear, a way for him to reflect a lot of different viewpoints. Reading the book, I was, I was struck by just how many similarities there are with Kissinger-like figures in Australia who I can't name because of our defamation laws. But there's this great quote in your book from a businessman called Johnny Chung, who in the very crude days of the 90s um, put $300,000 direct from Chinese military intelligence towards Clinton's re-election campaign, not because the Chinese loved Clinton, but because they absolutely hated Bob Dole, who was very much in the Taiwan camp and soon in the paid Taiwan camp. So it's, he's got this brilliant quote where he says... Um, I see the White House like a subway. You have to put in coins to open the <laughs> gates. Now, these are very familiar to us here in Australia with our political donations laws. So to what extent is America second the story of flaws in institutions that can be taken advantage of by anyone? That's really nicely said. I think the ability 
the, the pay-to-play nature of so much in the U.S. political system and the very weak anti-lobbying laws that we have, weak enforcement of fair of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, weak enforcement of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, all make it easier for foreign powers to exploit weaknesses in our system. And I, I think one of the most striking examples is the ways that uh, Beijing worked with former President George H.W. Bush and the trading money for access, trading money for speaking, you know, not directly, but through a long, sophisticated chain for speaking positively about Beijing. And Beijing has the opposite problem. You know, perhaps we're too free with what we let our former officials do, and they're far too closed. Uh, Chinese standing committee members can't travel overseas after they step down. It's very, very difficult for Chinese Politburo members to travel overseas when they step down. A lot of U.S. institutions and banks would love to hire Jiang Zemin or Wen Jiabao or Zhu Rongji to serve on boards, to give speaking tours, to write memoirs. It's not an option in the Chinese system, in part because the party fears the corrupting of its ex-officials and in part because feels that they have too many secrets and it doesn't want them to go and circulate those. Can I just jump in and ask you to unpack a little bit about the George H.W. Bush story that you've just alluded to? So Bush, strangely enough, was one of the most pro-Beijing ex-presidents. He wasn't in office, but he... After leaving office and after he became a business person as well, you know, it allowed him to indulge in his fascination with the place. So he was the one of the early U.S. envoys to China before they had official relations. He was a CIA director. Um, he spoke very fondly of Deng Xiaoping. Uh, Deng, who is the leader of China in the 80s, took the very unusual step of endorsing Bush in the 1988 elections. I, I think that was the only time a Chinese leader has ever publicly endorsed a U.S. presidential candidate. Uh, it was very striking. I mean, with Clinton, there was a lot of backroom dealings, but I don't believe that they actually came out and said it. And Bush, after leaving office, uh, young, um, wealthy, healthy, decided to focus on consulting, and a lot of his major clients had close relations with China. He was very active in the insurance space in the 90s, and the insurance companies would love to try to hire him and other former officials to go and get them meetings with top Chinese officials so that they could get the licenses to operate. And uh, Maurice Greenberg, who was then running AIG, had Kissinger and had a huge amount of access to the top Chinese leaders. And insurance companies like Chubb wanted to have, you know, their own Kissinger. So they, they worked with Bush. And there was, there's also, I, I, I can't not bring this up, a, a slightly lesser known Bush who, uh, who's sort of my anti-hero from the book. Can you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the lesser known Bush who uh, is prominent in some ways? Poor, poor, poor Neil Bush. Uh, also someone I, I didn't meet. He, he commented on the story, but I commented for the book, but wouldn't speak to me on the phone. He is the son of one president, the brother of another president. And he has said some of the most strikingly pro Beijing things that I, I've ever seen from an American. 
And it was a very long process, started with this very bizarre dinner that uh, Bush had with Jiang Zemin and the U.S. ambassador to China, I think in November, December 2001. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to be able to read declassified State Department documents because it just, the ambassador's there and he writes a cable about having dinner with Jiang Zemin and the questions that Jiang Zemin asks and then how near the end of the dinner, Jiang Zemin sings a patriotic song. And you can just imagine the bemusement and wonder and just the total oddness of being there. But that started Neil on a journey of being just very comfortable and very censorious of U.S. interests over Chinese interests. And with, with Neil, he's one of those figures that I really wish I had more time to report on because there, there's so much else there that I just couldn't get into the book. And I, I do hope that a lot more comes out and gets written about some of the business dealings that he did. He got set up, didn't he, though? What I think you might be referring to, Louisa, is a uh, detail from his divorce deposition, which got leaked in the early 2000s about him visiting prostitutes in Hong Kong and Thailand. And it's impossible to know if that was, I don't want to say coincidence because you don't coincidentally visit prostitutes. I don't know if that was something that the Chinese state planted or had any hand in, or if that was just, you know, the world's oldest profession, um, acting to make money, but it was a striking thing with the way that we see China now. So you opened the book with a story about Grindr and how potentially, um, Xi Jinping to butcher a metaphor has his hands on millions and millions of our dick pics. Um, now what's the state of play currently? Uh, you know, it seemed that measures have been taken to secure these potentially, you know, ex- extremely damaging pieces of information if linked to powerful people. Um, I mean, where are we at now? Are, are America's dick pics safe? <laughs> it's a very important question. And it's very difficult to know when Grinder had Chinese ownership and even after uh, how careful the Grinder team was with very, very sensitive data and information. And, you know, outside reports said that they had really bad privacy protocols. The Mozilla Foundation called them the, the worst of the worst in the way that they protected data. Um, they might be doing better now. Recently, they said, uh, recently they got deleted from Chinese app stores, though, probably has a lot more to do with you know, China's various puritanical crackdowns than anything on Grindr's end. But I, I think the the reason that I opened the book with the Grinder example is it's such a striking example of something that didn't seem like it could be a problem, but is. And I, I get a similar response, though. It's a much more boring anecdote with Arcteryx. It's a very high-end clothing climbing brand that used to be Canadian is now Chinese. Xi Jinping wore it when he was investigating Olympic stadiums about a year ago. And people don't understand that they're wearing it and supporting a company that uh, sources a lot of cotton from Xinjiang and is proud to do so. And so wearing an Arcteryx parka is not a national security threat, but you are supporting a company that you didn't 
probably understand that you're supporting. And it's similar with Grindr in that people use it and they don't think about the security implications. They probably think about the privacy implications, but they don't think about the sort of big data, AI, facial recognition pieces of this and how that can play out. But this revolving door between business and diplomacy and politics has been going on for a while and it's been incredibly beneficial to China. I mean, Wilbur Ross served on the board of a Chinese joint venture two years into his role as Trump's Commerce Secretary. And you also had the Transport Secretary, uh, Elaine Chow, um, whose father and sister were on board the Chinese State Shipbuilding Corporation. So, I mean, why has the US even an administration as, as vocally, you know, anti-China as the Trump administration been slow on acting on this? The Trump administration was surprisingly comfortable with China and the Chinese Communist Party until around 2018. Donald Trump was the first U.S. president since, I believe, Ronald Reagan to not meet with the Dalai Lama. Uh, that was also Kissinger's advice, reportedly, which is so surprising to he hear him pop up again. Uh, Mnuchin was very comfortable with Beijing and the way things were. And I, I think family members is always a tricky issue. And, you know, we see that with Neil Bush. We see that with Hunter Biden. We see that with uh, Richard Nixon's brother, who I believe he called his poor, dumb brother, Donald. It's a perennial problem because you don't want to pass laws restricting family members from being able to do certain things, but people understand how the system works. And so they influence the politicians or try to influence the politicians through family members. Wilbur Ross's move, I thought, was more problematic. It's either, you know, it was either an oversight or it was something where they didn't think it mattered or it was an intentional, you know, why bother? I don't want to, I don't need to disclose this, but I, I was pretty, <laughs> I was pretty surprised to see that. And I, I think, and I, I go into this a lot in the book, I'm a consultant now too. And I, I don't want to pretend that I am above all of these questions of conflicts of interest. It's, it's something that I have to struggle with as well. What do you say? What do you not say? When do you self-censor? When do you not? When do you publicly criticize people? When do you not? Uh, they're very tricky issues. And you just, you know, I think you have to take a lot of them on a case-by-case -case basis. So, I mean, when you started writing this book, did you think that you would effectively be writing a takedown of Kissinger and the American <laughs> elites? Is that what you set out to do? No, I started the book because I thought it was so bizarre to hear people speak about China in the United States the same way they spoke about it in China. You're used to these phrases, you know, oh, like, like China has 5,000 years of history, you know, therefore, so and so and so. And hearing those get injected into the U.S. discourse bloodstream was very odd for me, and I wanted to know more about how that was working and what was going on. And I think the other thing was a piece of advice that a freelance journalist gave me when I started out or just about 15 years ago. And she said, we were living in Beijing at the time, and she said, no one cares about Beijing. Uh, they don't care about anything that doesn't involve Americans. Pretend you're writing about Bolivia. You know, if you're if you're in Bolivia and you're a freelance journalist in Bolivia, the stories that people care about are the stories that involve Americans or that involve the United States. And so going back to the States, I realized there was this big story about America that wasn't really being told because people were thinking it was about China, but really it is about the United States. And I mean, when you think about 
that kind of official discourse, the Chinese lines that are basically being fed through American elites. And we know from the Farah filings, there's a whole program of influence. You know, uh, Tung Chi Hua's foundation is paying thousands, tens of thousands every month to lobbyists to get third-party influencers to write articles in newspapers and op-eds. On the whole, how successful has China been? That's such a great question. It's so difficult to know what the base case is and how more or less reviled they would be or respected they would be. Uh, Two points on that. One is, you know, I, I try to be clear that it's party discourse as opposed to Chinese discourse. So wide range of views, even within the Communist Party, but there's a wide range of views across China about, you know, how China should be, what the party thinks, what the party should do. But I would say an area of success you can point to is the growing gap between Wall Street and Main Street. Hollywood and the U.S. government on perceptions of China. Uh, U.S. businesses think and talk about China in a way that's far closer to what Beijing wants than the way that, you know, your quote unquote average American or average Australian talks and thinks about China. One of the things I've been thinking about is that when we think about Chinese propaganda, we tend to think in very crude terms about, you know, these videos and Xinhua and whatever. But in fact, As your book lays out, some of the ways in which China is shifting the dial when it comes to discourse are much, much subtler, and we tend not to account for them. We talk about American soft power in terms of films and stuff like that, but if you're looking at just discourse, how much top-down input is there? I mean, are we seeing more of that kind of Chinese language in statements from American elite? I think... We don't use the word propaganda nearly broadly enough. It, it, it's taken on a much narrower meeting in the United States than it actually has. It's been political speech that I disagree with is, is how people often use propaganda as opposed to political speech you know, that <laughs> attempts to influence, which is what the word traditionally meant. So I, I would argue that a huge range of U.S. speech is propaganda and you know, basically everything that comes out of uh, a Chinese official outlet is propaganda, but so uh, are many movies. And we see elements of Chinese propaganda in these movies. I think Hollywood is a great example. It's probably the best example of the success of Chinese propaganda in the United States. I think you know, now that we have really good sentiment analysis tools, I think there's a way of tracking certain ideas and certain statements about China and seeing how much credence they have, how much pickup they have. And what's happened since I stopped writing the book, you know, about six months ago and now is there's the starting of a backlash that we're starting to see with growing frustration, both at the Chinese system, but also, frankly, a growing realization that the United States and China are likely to be on opposing sides of a war and being seen as pro-Beijing or too pro-Beijing has real liabilities for people in the United States. And I I worry about this too from a freedom of expression um, position. 
I think the, you know, sometimes someone's taking on a position because they got money from a Teng Shuhua Foundation, and sometimes they're taking it on because they actually believe that. And I think there's a lot of excellent scholars and journalists in the United States who just have radically different views on China and the Communist Party than I do. And it doesn't mean that they're compromised or behaving unethically. It just means that they take the same series of facts and come to different conclusions. So, I mean, my final question for you would be, I, I was really intrigued to realize through your book that these intermediaries um, actually, actually do deliver for these companies. So through their sort of quiet diplomacy, if you like, they do get the outcome that the insurance companies want. They do get the licenses. And you often see um, similar figures in Australia expand this logic to oh, how we should do diplomacy to say, look, leave it to the professionals, leave it to the insiders with the contacts, and we'll get the outcomes for you. Um, I mean, is there evidence that this quiet diplomacy actually works inside China or is that a different thing to business? I think it works for the businesses. It's it sort of the, it depends on how much you think the, what do they say, that, you know, the, the business of America is business. I'm butchering some old famous US quote. I, I think they're effective for the companies and for the business community, but they take away a point of leverage and they weaken the U.S. negotiating position vis-a-vis -vis China. I think a lot depends on how zero-sum-minded you are about the relationship. You could argue that they do build trust between the two sides. But often what happens is Beijing recognizes that these companies will advocate for China in Congress. This was a big lesson they learned in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so through Kissinger, Albright, Scowcroft, you know, they will pass on those messages. And then those companies will do something in the United States that pleases Beijing and Beijing will reward them. And I mean, finally, do you think this book can change anything in terms of outcomes? Or isn't there a danger that here you are taking aim at a lot of incredibly powerful people and corporations and one of the things that you are exposing is, in actual fact, just how little they do for the amount of money they're getting. You know, as you said, a single email, a single phone call, a line in a document. I mean, that's not going to, you know, you're going to make a lot of people unhappy with this, aren't you? I hope that this book does make people think twice about the ethical compromises that they make. And sometimes they're, they're still very much worth making. And sometimes people are weighing all the factors and deciding. And you know, one of my favorite quotes in the book comes from a former chairman of American Express who hired Kissinger. And he said, you know, show me a situation without conflicts of interest and I'll show you a level of mediocrity where nothing ever gets done. You know, Mao Zedong had a somewhat similar quote uh, what is it? Um, clear water has no fish. Like the, the, these things always have some gray area. And I, I think there are good places to discuss. And I would love for there to be more of a public conversation about these gray areas. Isaac Stonesbeach, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests and my co-host, Louisa Lin. 
Editing is by Andy Hazel. Background research by Wing Kwong. Our music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts come courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.